This morning I want to look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. This was the subject I was given at the men's conference back in early March, for which I have been burdened to bring this message or a version of it to you since that time, and it worked out that I will do so this morning. In fact, uh, Brother Titus and I will do a short series together on some of the one another's in the Bible. Maybe not consecutively, but we would like to look at some of those passages. Uh, Some men have counted up to 59, some less, uh, depending on what version you're using. I suppose that number could change, but be rest assured we will not uh, do 59 if we could find them all, but maybe four or five or six. So today we start with bear one another's burdens, The, the the. Phrase itself, in the original language, which you remember, it can be in any order. It doesn't have to be the subject first, followed by verb and direct object. You can place emphasis anywhere you want on a particular word or phrase in the Greek language. And here, in the original, it's one another. Heavy burdens bear. So the emphasis is the community and our, our responsibility to one another to bear one another's burdens. So three questions, what exactly is that? How is it to be done? And then Paul finishes with a test to sort of help us understand where we are in the doing of this imperative mood command to bear one another's burdens. So what is it? Well, the word... Burden simply means, as it sounds, something that's heavy, something that's weighty, something that could be troublesome. In Matthew 20, verse 12, it speaks of those that had borne the heat of the day. In other words, the burden was just laboring in the hot sun. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul speaks of it in a positive way. You remember he said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more and exceeding weight Boros, weight, same word, of glory. So something heavy there is not troublesome, it's glorious, it's heavy, it's large, it's big, it's weighty. But here, obviously, the weight is not something good, it's something that is troublesome because we are called to come in and bear it. So we are to bear one another's burden. So the imagery already is that there's something not good, something that's on someone's shoulders, the imagery there, that's weighing them down for which they need some kind of assistance that we give to each other. So the implication is is that you need it and I need it, and we're going back and forth in carrying one another's burdens. To bear just means that. It means to lift it, to put it on your shoulders, and then carry it for another person. So that reminds me of years ago when I worked in Washington, there was this man, he did not, by what he was doing, encourage me in the least bit to do this, but he would train obviously and run every morning. I'd pass him on the way to work early morning, and he had a backpack on his back. But you could tell by the way the backpack was bouncing up and down, and every time it hit the bottom, it just shook him that there was some kind of weight in that backpack. Now, I guess it was bricks. I don't know, but it was heavy, and he wasn't moving very fast, and every time the backpack came down, it just caused him to pause for a split second. Now, he obviously was doing that for training purposes, but if you observe that, the weight was impeding his process. It was stalling him out for a split second. It was causing him not to run as he ought to run. And so that's the imagery Paul is using here. There's something going on with this weight, this burden that is preventing something from happening for which you are called on then to come alongside of your brother or your sister and to lift the weight and put it on your shoulders. Now there's figurative language here, but we'll we'll see what that is. So what exactly is that work? Well, the participles help us connect what's in verse 2 with verse 1. So Paul says... Restoring such an one, present participle, imperative mood, bearing one another's burdens. So the participle bearing is pointing to the participle restoring. 
Bearing burdens is the work of restoration, which should be a common, regular thing in church life. Shouldn't be abnormal, because we're sinners, and we are often burdened, aren't we? We're troubled. And so this should be normative in the church of Jesus Christ. The word for restoring is a word that means to supply what is needed or missing to mend or repair, to make someone what they ought to be, to restore to a former condition. This word, you may know, is used and translated mend in Matthew 4.21 when Jesus finds his sons of Zebedee, James and John, they're in the boat with their father, mending their nets. They are restoring their nets. The kind of nets they use in the Sea of Galilee had weights on them. They went to the bottom and they drug them. And it would get debris, they would get snagged. And if the fisherman every day didn't wash and mend the nets, it affected his livelihood because fish then would not get caught in the net. They would go right through in the big gaps. So it was imperative. Every day they washed and mended the nets. Why? So that they would be restored to a former condition. So that they would be restored to a condition that they ought to be. Right? Now, one thing is sure the Bible makes concerning this word, God is in the business of restoration, and that's good news. Do you ever feel a need to be restored? Do you ever think you'll ever have a need in the future where you have a burden and you need restoration? Well, it's good news to know your Father is in the business of restoration. Hebrews 13 says this, Now the God of peace, which brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of of the everlasting covenant. The shepherd has sheep that belong to him. Through his blood, he was brought again from the dead to rescue them from their sins. And now because of that, what is God doing? Making you perfect. That's the Greek word. And let me put the meaning in there. Making you what you ought to be. And what ought you to be? What's missing in your life? Is it not the the great image of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it not His love is so often missing in my love? Is it not His his character that's missing? So what God is going to do is come inside of those sheep and do what? Make them what they ought to be, working in them that which is pleasing in His own sight. So here God in Hebrews 13, as the great restorer, He's coming inside of His sheep, He's coming inside of His people because of the successful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through His covenant everlasting has so secured their everlasting life. He comes and His aim is to make you what you ought to be little by little because Hebrews 10 declares you've been sanctified once for all and therefore you're being sanctified. You're already what you ought to be but you're not what you ought to be. And so what God is doing inside of you is not making you righteous legally You already are. He's bringing about a righteousness in you that's working itself out in love or in the image of Jesus Christ. So God's work of restoration is going on in you, but it's going on outside of you. That word is used again in a familiar passage we use often, 1 Peter 5.10. But the God of all grace, who has called you unto His eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you suffered a while make you what you ought to be. Now the word in the English there is perfect, but the word in the Greek is the same word for restoration. Now how is God making you what you ought to be? Well, He comes inside of you to work inside. Now He's outside of you and what? You're suffering. He's ordained your suffering as a means to make you what you ought to be. Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That's what grace is doing. So whatever your hardships right now, I don't care what they are, God is using that hardship to make you what you ought to be. What an amazing transformation that will make when you can see it that way. It doesn't remove the pain. doesn't always remove the tears. But it does something in your soul that keeps you going. He's using the suffering to supply what's missing. What's missing? The character of Christ. You know, doesn't matter how old you get, something is still missing, isn't it? So he's working inside of you, he's working outside of you through your suffering to make you what you ought to be. 
Because in suffering, you're going to experience something about God that you don't know. You may know it in your head from the book, but now you're going to know what it's like to trust God in your suffering. It's the only place you can know it. What is He doing? He's making you what you ought to be by allowing you graciously to experience Him as He is for you. And that's the same Greek word that Paul uses. But here, making the point that whatever God is calling us to in bearing burdens, we understand He's the restorer. You're an instrument of restoration. You're just an instrument. I say just, not because there's no significance in that, but to point to the fact He's doing the restoration, but He calls you to be the instrument. The, the, the rake, the hoe, the shovel. You are the instrument of restoration to one another by bearing one another's burdens. All right, what's the burden? Well, you already know in the first verse, it's a fault, right? Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore concerning that fault. Bear the burden, lift it, carry it for that person. Now that demands the question, how do you carry someone's faults? Does that mean I, I, I join them in bearing the guilt? I don't want you to be guilty by yourself, so I'm going I'm to join you in that fault. The word fault is a misdeed. It's often translated transgression. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses. Transgressions, trespasses, and sin. Same word there. It's a misdeed, it's a sin, it's a trespass, it's a transgression. So do we carry it by joining them in the transgression and being part of it? Certainly not. The way we carry the fault is we carry the responsibility for restoration. Isn't that usually my main problem and yours? Well, it's not my responsibility. But it is. Imperative mood settles it. One another settles it. So I'm going to lift and carry the responsibility for your burden by restoring and seeking to restore you. Paul gives the same kind of imagery in Romans 15. Verse 1, he says, We then that are strong ought to bear or carry the infirmities of the weak. How do you do that? Do you get weak with them? Whatever that means there. So we lift up, we carry the weaknesses or the infirmities of the weak. So what is their weakness? It's a weakness of mind. It's a weakness of conscience. It's a weakness concerning food offered to idols. So you're bearing the responsibility not to eat the meat offered to idols, although you know you can by faith, and it's okay with God, but you carry on your shoulders the responsibility not to destroy the weak brother for whom Christ died and put him on the pathway of sin because he goes against conscience and goes against faith because he sees you eat that meat. Now, in a Jewish culture, that was significant because they never ate meat offered to idols, and they still thought, as a Christian, this is wrong. She said, well, that's their problem. I can eat this meat, right? Yes, you can. Can I drink that glass of wine? Yeah, yeah, yes, you can. But you have a responsibility to your brother to refrain and not to please yourself, Paul said. And what would you do if you please yourself? You would go to that banquet, you would look at that steak, and you would see that wine, and you would take it in, right? You're not bearing your brother's weakness. You're just pleasing yourself. And that's what I struggle with. And I know as sinners you struggle with the same. So that's what Paul is saying here. No, we don't carry their fault. No, we don't, we don't join them. We bear the responsibility of going to restore that brother or sister who is in a fault, which it's one another. Which means you may be restoring me, I may be restoring you. It's not a one-sided kind of superiority for which we only give the restoration and there's never occasion for me to receive it. It's mutual. It's something you should find in the life of the church. Why do we not find it? Well, sometimes we just ignore the responsibility. Well, that's not my responsibility. Somebody else will do it. The pastor will do it. One another doesn't mean pastor. Certainly, I'm in, 
I'm in part of one another, but that means you. You're the spiritual here. If you know the context of this book, Paul is using a little irony and sarcasm there because they thought the spiritual person was the person being circumcised and trying to contribute their own self-righteousness to Christ. He said, if you're really spiritual, this is what you'll do. You'll quit creating burdens by your law and you'll start lifting them by restoration. Sometimes we ignore it. We know it and say, well, that's just not my business. When It is according to God. You're His instrument. We're His instrument. Sometimes we say, okay, I'm tracking. I should do that. Then we come in not with a a, a rake, you know, or maybe with tweezers we come in with a hammer. If a fault is is likened to a splinter in someone's finger, say, well, I'll get it out. I'm going to hammer that thing till it comes out. Who cares about the broken bones? And we're harsh and we're critical and we're demanding. That's the other extreme. And then sometimes we can be without discernment. We say, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. Now, maybe there's not, because who defines what a fault is? You don't and I don't. God does. So we certainly should be very clear that we're not trying to help restore someone, and they're not in a fault, right? So... We need to be discerning. Is, is this clearly what God says is a fault? And, and is it hindering this person? And that takes discernment. But sometimes we don't have that. So that there are some reasons why we may not engage in this, but clearly God makes us responsible. And the implication here is community, isn't it? Because if you're not in community, you don't know what anybody's faults are because you never spend any time with them. Isn't that amazing? If you have no connection with anybody here, well, you would never know if they were having a fault or not, perhaps. So, Paul speaking to the churches of Galatia, this text implies that there's relationship going on to some degree, right? All right, the next word in how to do it, or rather, what is it? Paul uses the word overtaken. That's an important word. There's two nuances here. Surprise and to forestall someone. Surprise. Now that's important because Paul's making the point that this is not a deliberate, predetermined course they're on. You know, the person says, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'm, this is where I'm going. That kind of person needs restoration also. But Jude says there's a different method for that person, right? In Jude, the false teachers are disrupting the saints for which Jude is speaking about these men. And then at the end of the Short epistle, he says, of some have compassion making a difference. Compassion means you go to bring help to them. But to make a difference means you make a distinction. What kind of compassion do you bring? What kind of help do you bring? Maybe someone is dabbling with false teaching and are moving in the pathway of error. And they're not sure and they're wrestling with it. Well, you bring help with compassion. You make a distinction. What is the help they need? Somebody else has jumped in with two feet. So Jude says what? Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating you in the garments spotted by the flesh. That's a different method. That's a person that's all in. They're on a pathway they know about. They're determined. They're in error. And now you're rescuing them from fire. So that's a different method. You know, you don't, you don't schedule lunch two weeks from now. What's your schedule? You know, he's up there on the second floor and there's a burning building all around. He says, if we could meet for lunch sometime, that, that'd be good. You got some time. Just let me know. Text me. It's fine. No. Get out of the fire. That's right. See? That's right. Fear means hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. You're careful not to be sucked into the inferno yourself. Using great caution. You could be sucked in too. So that's a different method. So that person needs to be restored. But here, Paul is talking about being overtaken. It wasn't deliberate, but there is a fault there. There's a transgression. And it's forestalling them. To forestall means to prevent or hinder something in advance. So you can forestall something like the Lincoln Village event was forestalled by rain. Meaning what? We saw the forecast and some people got together and said, hey, we should put this inside. 
So we're going to prevent cancellation ahead of time by moving it indoors. You forestalled the event. It didn't get canceled. But you can be forestalled. Something has happened in your life that's preventing or hindering something in advance. Like stalled on the side of the road or stalled in a construction zone on the highway. And you're prevented from making advance to the destination and you're going to miss your meeting or whatever you need to be at on time. This brother or sister is forestalled. The fault is forestalling them. And what is it keeping them from? The fruits of the Spirit. They are stalled out concerning the aim of the Spirit in their life, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. They're stalled. And you know it. They're like the man with the weight on his back and he's trying to run. He's he's stalled. Yes, he was training, but he's stalled out. He's, He's not moving. He's on the side of the road. You're on the side of the road. The engine is stopped and the fruit is is not there. God calls you to be an instrument in His hand of restoration. And I, I very well understand all the apprehensions and fears and struggles that all of us have. And the, and the times where it didn't turn out right, I didn't say the right thing, and all the ways that sinners fumble yet would you not say it's very clear from the imperative move, God in no uncertain terms says, this is what I will for your life. This is what I want in community. Not only do we need God, beloved, we need one another. And God has ordained instruments in His hands to be instruments of restoration. Okay, so you're tracking, say, okay, I get that. How do we do that? Now what's interesting in this context... Paul is not interesting in giving us a script to follow. Oh, I would love, if you've got one, I'm, I'm all ears. You know, say, well, you need to say this first. And if they say that, you say this. And if they say that, you say this. That's wonderful. No script. He gives you a spirit. You know why? The spirit is far more important than the script. Because the spirit is going to influence the script that comes out of my mouth. I'm, I'm still wanting, if you've got a good script to follow, I'm all ears, but my heart and my spirit is far more important. So here's Paul, what he says about the means. In the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Three things here after I define the word meekness. Meekness is a, a God-wrought disposition in the soul that first accepts what God is doing in your life as good without resisting, striving against Him, or struggling against what He's doing in your life. Meekness often follows humility. So in humility in the sight of God, meekness comes out of that. And we're receiving from God's hand, whether it's by the Word or by providence, without resisting and fighting against Him. And then meekness toward fellow man and fellow Christian is not retaliating against even evil men or one another because we, in the sight of God, understand that God is at work among us. The actual word is just gentleness, mildness. That gentleness is flowing out of a view of God and a recognition of what He's doing around you based on what the Scripture says. So the first thing that meekness considers about itself is in light of the God of grace. Now, how do I get that? Because it says, lest you be tempted also. What does that mean? So you approach your brother, you're just supposed to think, well, I could be tempted here. I I could fall into the same sin. I think Paul wants us to ask the question, why haven't you? Now, obviously, if you're caught in the same fault, you're, you're not doing the restoration, so... At least in this particular fault, you're not tempted at the moment. But the brother has been overtaken. So if I ask myself, why haven't I been overtaken by the fault? Well, I just take the law. You know, I've been circumcised and I just do what the law says and I haven't fallen. 
Wrong answer. For he that thinketh himself to be something when he's nothing, you're deceiving yourself. But if you think yourself to be nothing, then you're something called grace. The reason you haven't fallen to the same sin is you are what you are by the grace of God. There go I, but by the grace of God. If that disposition is not gripping you, look out. You're not ready for any work of restoration. Because what are you going to bring to that person? You're not bringing grace. You're not bringing what you desperately need. You're not bringing the help of God. You're just bringing you and your law service and how you've accomplished this. You've been successful. I don't get why you can't get it. Maybe you wouldn't say it in the same way, but... If you're thinking that, it's going to come out in your mouth because you're not remembering. If you're not tempted, it's because God's preserving you and God's being gracious to you. You say, wait a minute, but don't I have something to do with that? Don't I have to fight sin? Yes, but what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And His grace which was bestowed on me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all. So yes, Paul was engaged, but it was the grace of God with me. That means he was looking to the help of God as a bankrupt, empty, incapable sinner that was doing something owing to grace. You come to somebody like that, what are you bringing them? Grace. You're not talking about what you've done and how you got it done. You're Brother, let me tell you how grace helped me to overcome that. We need to remember what we are is all by the grace of God. And yes, we labor in grace. Yes, we are commanded to fight the good fight of faith, but faith is resting in the help of another person named Christ and not in oneself. If we come any other way, we're forgetting the grace of God. We're not considering ourselves in light of grace and that I am what I am by the grace of God and therefore we're coming in a spirit that's not pleasing to God. I have been in that spirit, I have come in that spirit and I know the potential to do it again. Paul told Titus, you remember in Titus 3, he said, put the people in mind on the island of Crete. You know the island where there are evil beasts and slow bellies and everybody's a liar and everybody's uh, sinners in, in this particular open way. Put them in remembrance to be subject to principalities, powers, magistrates, authorities, governors, presidents, executive orders. Put them in mind. And then what did he say? That you be... Speaking evil of no man, the magistrates. Do not blaspheme God by speaking evil against them. You, know, you, can, you can talk about what they're doing that's sinful. That's just clearly Scripture. But to slander them, don't do that. Don't be brawlers, contentious. Be gentle, showing all meekness to all men, including men that sign executive orders. Now, how do you feel in your soul when that happens? I feel contention. (laughs) I mean, something starts to rise in me, I have to go, get back down. I even have, I'm I'm just confessing for a moment, I I even have a conversation in my own head if I was to be able to talk to that man or that woman. And I start acting out what I would say, and then I have to say, Lord, forgive me, That's that's not of you. You ever have those conversations with yourself? If you just had an opportunity to talk to that person, what you would say to them? That's not meekness. Now take that same mindset and go to your brother now. If I had an opportunity just to talk to them, this is what I'd say. That's not meekness. Paul, how on earth do you expect Titus to show all meekness to all men when these evil beasts and slow bellies are signing executive decrees on the island of Crete? Just illustration. Titus, you need to remember what you once were, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving all kinds of lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And then what what happened to you, Titus? Same thing that happened to me, Paul says. After the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared in the gospel, Not by works of the law or circumcision or contribution. By mercy. When you can remember, you are what you are decisively by the grace of God and that disposition grabs a hold of you, 
You won't go making demands. You'll go bringing the very grace that rescued you and is rescuing you. And it'll shape every word you say. Even if you say a wrong word, which happens to it'll still give shape to the script. And how important that is for us. So we remember, considering that we also would be, could be tempted, which means grace is what keeps us. So we're bringing grace. We're instruments of grace. Secondly, meekness is looking at itself in light of the power of God. Right? You don't have the power of restoration, but how many times do we speak as if we do? To our children, to our spouses? I, I don't get it. I, I said it to them one time. I said it clearly. I think I did a pretty good job. They understood what I said. I don't understand why they didn't obey me, my children. You think you have the power of restoration. You think because you speak, everything falls into place. I think that if I go to restore a brother, it should take one time. I mean, was I clear? We're forgetting. Meek people understand. I'm just an instrument. You know, this is a time where you can really say, I just work here. You ever been frustrated when a worker says that? Well, here's a good time. I'm just an instrument. You know, he's the restorer, so I just, I just want to bring what God says, and it's all up to him. It's all up to him. That's going to give you peace. And I, you remember, that's what Paul kept t- told Titus, or Timothy rather. I keep saying it. That's, that's what I wanted to say. Timothy, in meekness, instruct those that oppose themselves. What's meekness going to do? You're going to remember, Timothy, you don't have the power to save. You don't have the power to restore. You don't have the power to change. You don't have the power of sanctification. You don't have the power of anything with regard to that person changing. Preventure, God would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now, what that means is, it's kind of tricky in the Greek language. It means God has to give it, period. And if He doesn't give it, guess what? It doesn't get done. Meekness understands that and therefore doesn't resist God and struggle with God by struggling with the people in your life. You say, well, sometimes I just get frustrated. You know, I say it over and over and over again. You know what frustration means? You're annoyed because you can't accomplish something or create change. What does that mean? Your frustration means... You think you have the power to change people. And that's why you're frustrated. Because they won't change. And you keep saying it. As if just me saying something can have such an earthquake impact on people. Right? Our frustration communicates what? I I wish you could be like me. I wish you could be as godly as I am. I wish you could obey God like I do. And I'm frustrated that you can't. And all my words convey the spirit of pride and not meekness. Brother, if you've said it a hundred times, say it a hundred and one because God is the restorer. You're not. Now, I'm not suggesting there's not a deep problem and the Bible may say there's something else that needs to be done, but the fact is meekness considers itself in light of the power of God and knows just because I said it, just because everything happened to turn out as good as it could have in terms of what I said, God must grant the adjustment, the alignment. It's God that makes people what they ought to be. You're just an instrument. Be an instrument. And then thirdly, meekness is going to consider itself in light of the plan of God. And and I'm going to get this in verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault. To live in the Spirit, Paul has already said it means to walk in the Spirit in verse 16. This I say, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You won't gratify the flesh. So if we're living in the Spirit, we're walking in the Spirit, and that means then we are living a life that is consistent with what the Spirit aims to do in your life. And clearly in chapter 5, He aims to produce fruit in your life. So if you're walking in the Spirit, you're taking note 
of the fruits that are missing in your life and you want to ask God to fill that up. You want to ask God to develop that in your life and you're going to look at it and say, I'm not very long suffering. Well, there's a fruit the Spirit aims to produce and that branch is dry. There's no fruit on that branch called long suffering. So I want to walk in the Spirit. So I'm asking God to help me with that. Now I'm going to God and trying to cultivate, however the Bible says, the fruit of being long suffering toward people. So, Paul says that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, not doing the works of the flesh. Likewise, if we look at the list of the works of the flesh and we see ourselves in it, and you probably will find yourself there. There's two categories, sexual sin, relationship sin. They're both relational, right? Variance, wrath, strife, contention, but fornication, sensuality, lasciviousness, etc. See? If we see any of those, we know we're not walking in the Spirit. Repentance is in order. We're asking God. We want to get back in line with the Spirit's work in my life, which is fruit of love, joy, peace, etc. But now in verse 25, Paul uses a different Greek word for the word walk. And you know this. If you live in the Spirit, let us walk in step in a platoon in the Spirit. It doesn't say that, but the word walk here is a word that means in step, like marching in a platoon or an army of some kind, battalion. I better stop there. I may get the wrong words, but you get it. There, there's a community, and the community is called church here. And so if we want to live consistent with what the Spirit's doing in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit, now Paul is saying, let us walk in the Spirit, meaning let us walk in a way that we want to live consistent with what the Spirit is doing in the person marching beside me. And what is He doing in the person beside you? The fruit of the Spirit. But now He's forestalled. The engine has shut down because of a thing called a fault and you're marching right beside them and you know it. They're out of step. If you're going to walk in the Spirit, you want to live consistently with what the Spirit is doing in his or her life, and something has called, uh, caused a stalling. And you look over and you see they're out of step. And they look over and see you're out of step. So the Spirit of meekness is not just reaching out to restore them. It's receiving God's work of restoration when I'm out of step and you call it to my attention. Now, when we understand the plan of God concerning meekness, we understand that God has put us in the platoon called church, not by accident, but by design. Everybody in the building, every stone is there on purpose. And we're to be marching together to Zion. At least that's what you sing. We're marching together to Zion. So what are the implications? What we under, meekness understands the plan of God so it doesn't resist the plan of God. It doesn't struggle against it with frustration. I don't know why this person can't get it right. Just so out of step. It's just so annoying. You seek to restore. And at the same time, the plan of God in their restoration is showing you something about yourself. Because if you're annoyed, if you're frustrated, now what fruit is lacking? Long-suffering. That's the exact opposite of frustration. See, Rather than love, I'm unloving towards that person. Rather than have joy and count it all joy that this person's beside me, I'm upset with this person. Rather than peace in my heart that rules there, I'm in turmoil because of this person. And I'm not long-suffering, I'm not good to them, I'm not gentle to them. Even the people that are marching beside you is an occasion for God to show you your lack of fruit. And that something needs restoration in your own life, which you see. But ultimately here, we're going out to one another when we get out of step to help us come back in line so that we will what? Be what we ought to be. That's the word restoration. God is using you in the platoon as we help each other to be what we ought to be. Now, what gets in the way? Vainglory. Let us not 
be desirous of vain glory, empty glory. Empty glory is a glory that won't satisfy. It's the glory of self-righteousness. It's the glory of the problem of the issue of justification in the letter to the churches of Galatia. They were being self-righteous. Now, what happens when the person next to you is out of step and you desire vain glory? Well, you provoke and you envy. The word provoke means to challenge to a combat. And how does that challenge work out in your relationships? How do you challenge someone when they try to restore you? How did I do that? Tell me what I did. You resist the plan of God for why that person was put in your life to help you in restoration and sanctification. No, you're not the sanctifier, but you're an instrument. And we challenge one another in our relationships back and forth. No, that was your fault. No, that was your fault. Because self-righteousness has one goal, to defend the honor of self and to show everybody in the room, I was right. And I will go to the mat to prove it. With manipulation, doing a side run, showing you how it was your fault, and all the ways that I and you have defended ourselves. Even at times knowing clearly I had some fault to bear here. See? In the platoon called the church, when we don't have the spirit of meekness, we will be challenging one another, provoking one another, not listening to one another, and we'll envy one another. And what does the spirit of envy do? If you want vainglory and a brother is burdened down with a, with a load of, uh, of, of guilt and a fault that's overtaking him, well, you're glad. Because if you desire vainglory, you can't get it when he's walking so well with the Lord. So if he's burdened down, you feel good about it. Because now you look a lot better if he's burdened and you ignore it. Now that was specifically the problem at the churches of Galatia. Because of their self-righteousness, if you want to be seen that way, then you like it when burdens are created for people. Because they're hunkered over and you're standing upright. So secretly, you're kind of glad when there's a failure. I remember when I was in high school, I played on the baseball team, and my friend and I got in trouble. I don't remember why. It's not important why, but I was in trouble. And we didn't start. We got put on the bench. And the coach saw us over there with our faces. We were pouting. I'll never forget. He came over and said, you can wish that your counterpart, which was a sophomore and I was a senior, on the field can do bad, or you can get up and cheer for him. He saw right through my soul. Secretly, I sat there thinking, well, maybe he'll strike out, maybe he'll miss a ground ball, maybe he'll err, and I can get back in the game. Vainglory. Vainglory. See, when we're, we have the spirit of self-righteousness, we're, we're secretly glad when people stumble, because that just calls to attention the fact that I haven't done that. That's when we think ourselves to be something, and at that point we're nothing. Nothing. So may God give us the spirit of meekness, which is the fruit of the Spirit, and that disposition then rather than resisting God's work of restoration, when someone calls to account your fault, your wife does, your husband does, somebody in the church does, rather than resisting the reason God put that person there, even when we're in the fault, meekness receives it, receives it, and wants to get back on the pathway of keeping in step with the Spirit, which means we're aligning ourselves together as we're all focused on the Spirit, which is not really a focus on the Spirit, because the Spirit puts the spotlight on Jesus Christ. That's His whole goal. In the Bible, we get the sense as the Spirit saying, look, don't look at me. Don't even talk about me that much. My aim is to give glory to the Son. You be talking about the Son, and then you're being filled with the Spirit. And lastly, Paul ends with a test that we need to take briefly. Verse 3. Now this is in the context of bearing burdens. Because if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove or test his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. So in the context of bearing burdens, verse 3, this is a person that's not meek but proud. 
He's addressing the false teachers and then those at the churches of Galatia who are insistent on contributing to Christ's righteousness. You insist on that, it's going to mean something for you, the judgment that you don't want. So he says, here's a test. So that that's not the case, he says, let every man test his own work. Now, Paul assumes they're going to pass the test because he says, then shall you have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So this test is one question, one answer. What's the test? How is the law of Christ fulfilled? Verse 2. See, when we're bearing one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Galatians 5. The law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Love your neighbors yourself. Romans 13. Love worketh no ill toward his neighbor, because love is the fulfilling of the law. You want to fulfill the law of Christ? We do. You go love. You go love. Your love is not securing your righteousness. You're loving out of being justified by Christ and grace through faith. Because faith produces love. So how is the law fulfilled? Here's the test. By works or by faith? Well, the churches of Galatians are thinking works at the moment. And so they think themselves to be something. That's going to create a disposition as to how they treat people. What are they going to do? Bite and devour one another? Why? Gratification of the lust? What? Self-righteousness gives gratification. Because I look good. You think I'm good. You think I'm wonderful. That's the implication. But what's the answer? Paul doesn't give that answer. Faith or works. The right answer is faith, produces love. The wrong answer is works. If you say works, you think yourself to be something. If you say faith... Jesus Christ and His righteousness, then you're meek. But He doesn't say that because the answer is rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because Paul says, if you pass the test, then you'll have rejoicing in yourself alone and not in another. Now what does that mean? When am I ever supposed to rejoice in myself? Well, in context, if you're rejoicing in another, what are you rejoicing in? They're false because you're envious. If you think yourself to be something, which means you're self-righteous, and you take the test and you say the law is fulfilled by your circumcision or your works, then your rejoicing is another man's failures. That's why you won't restore him. You think the churches of Galatia are going to restore anybody? No, it makes them look good. When a brother is down... Just as far as he can go. You pass the test if your rejoicing is not in another man's faults, but your rejoicing is in Christ alone, independent of another. Paul uses the same word in verse 10. I will glory, I will not rejoice in anything except for Christ Jesus crucified. How is the law fulfilled? Christ's righteousness alone, without contribution of prayer, work, circumcision, doing works, doing anything. Finished. Do you pass the test? Is that your joy? The false teachers would not have said that's their joy. They get joy... To get you circumcised, Paul would say in Galatians 6, because it makes them look better. The answer of the test is, where is your joy? Where is your rejoicing? If it's in Christ's righteousness alone, independent of another person, whether they have faults or not, then you pass the test. And that joy that comes from faith, kind of the same answer, right? The joy of faith is what's going to give you that spirit of disposition and meekness in the presence of God that's going to move you out in the work of restoration. Because every man shall bear his own burden. Why do you need to pass the test? Because if your rejoicing is in self-righteousness and the burdens of others, guess what? You're going to bring the burden of your own faults before Jesus Christ along with your self-righteousness. 
and you're not going to stand. You're going to have to bear the burden which Paul already said is false. You're going to have to bear the burden of your own faults because you think you've contributed to your own righteousness. Therefore, you're committed to keep the whole law. And the point is what? You're dead. You're condemned. You've already broken it. Pharisees were good about putting burdens on people's backs, Matthew 23, because they loved the praise and it made them look better. So beloved, the way we fulfill the law of Christ is not by working for Christ or working to do anything to contribute. We rest in Christ by faith. We rejoice in His finished work and we cast all our burdens on Him. He is the burden bearer. And you can't be right by self and right by Christ at the same time. You cast it all on Him. He has borne the burden of your sin. He's borne the weight of your condemnation and guilt in the cross. And therefore, when you stand before Him that day, you will not bear the burden of your faults because Jesus has borne it for you. He's fully paid the price. And therefore, we rejoice in His righteousness. And out of that faith and joy, out of that meekness, we go forward to seek to obey Christ and bearing one another's burdens, not because it's going to contribute anything to our salvation, but because out of that great joy of Christ the burden bearer, we can move forward and be obedient to His commands. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us, and we want to confess that we uh, fail so often at carrying one another's burdens, and we want to be... Uh, more obedient to Your Word in all the ways that Your Word commands us to be something one to another by relying upon Your grace and recognizing You're the restorer. You're the one that creates change. You're the one that saves. You have the power to save alone. So help us to be instruments in the hands of the Redeemer in peace and resting in Your grace and to move forward with all of our fears, casting them on You with all the reasons that we could excuse ourselves from being obedient to this command, which we have many, we would cast them at the feet of Christ and ask for your grace and your strength and the spirit of meekness so that we wouldn't resist the people you've put in our lives. We wouldn't resist your dealings with us in restoration and in confrontation and all the ways that we are to be something to each other. But we would receive it as from God, your loving hand, and we would seek then to be restored and to restore, and that you may have all the glory. We ask you all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.